Well, good morning, everyone. It is very nice to be able to add to the welcome Simon gave there at the start. If you have your Bible, please do open with me to Galatians chapter 1. It'll be really helpful for you to have that in front of you uh, as we walk down through it. But let me just pray now as we come to look at God's Word, and let's really ask for the Lord's help. We all need God's help anytime we open the Word of God, whether we're preaching, whether we're receiving We all need the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we will not see and we will not understand. So let's just again look to the Lord as we come to his word. Let's pray. Father, you have told us that your word is living and active. And so as we settle down together into your word just now, we pray that you would help us by giving us light, illumination from the Spirit that your word would live to us this morning, that you would speak through what you have spoken, that you would get things done in our hearts and lives for your glory. So Lord, make the book live to us this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we started our new series in this letter, uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, last week, looking at the introductory first five verses and addressing a who, a why, and a what question. If you weren't here last week, hopefully this little recap will serve you well as we get into the next section this morning. Who? is writing. That was the first question we asked last week. Who is writing to whom? And we saw that this is the Apostle Paul writing to the churches in central Turkey, in this Roman province of Galatia back then, that these churches were planted by the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey. So Paul is writing as an authoritative apostle to the Galatian churches. Why was he writing? Well, we identified that there was a problem in the Galatian churches. Certain people calling themselves Christians in the Galatian churches were saying that the gospel that Paul preached was in some way incomplete. They were saying Paul preached that we can be made right with God by trusting in the all-sufficient accomplishments of Jesus through his death and resurrection, but that's not enough. These so-called Christians from a Jewish background were saying, no, Christ alone is not enough to save you. You also need to do acts of religious devotion. You need to obey Old Testament Jewish laws and religious customs. And we saw last week why this was such a problem. It strips glory, this gospel, this false gospel, strips glory from the sufficiency of the finished work of Christ, and it enslaves us to fear. If you have a gospel that says Jesus gets you halfway and then you get yourself the rest, how can you ever know if you've done enough to get yourself the rest of the way to being right with God? And Paul knew that the Galatians were being led astray by this false gospel, so he writes to them to call them back to the true gospel. 
What then was that gospel that Paul was calling them back to? Well, we saw it summarized in verses 3 and 4. It is the gospel of grace and peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ alone who gave himself to deliver us from sins. And this is a gospel that makes sure that God gets all the glory for our salvation. Now, with that introduction in place, as we move on now into the second part of Paul's introduction in verses 6 to 10, we're going to see, and we do see, that Paul wastes no time in getting down to business and addressing this problem that has prompted his writing. Now, usually in the Apostle Paul's letters, after an initial greeting, he usually nearly always goes on to express some kind of thanksgiving to those he's writing to, how he thanks God for them and how he praises God when he thinks of their faith. He often shares how he's praying for the people that he's writing to. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4, after a greeting, Paul then writes, I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 1.15, after an initial greeting, Paul writes, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you. Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, always making my prayer with joy. So in Galatians 1, after verses 1 to 5, you would expect Paul to say something like, no, I give thanks for you all at Galatia, and I am praying for you. But we do not see that at all. Look at what we see in verse 6. There's an urgency about Paul right from the word go. Instead of thanksgiving, instead of telling them what he's praying for them, he just says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, to get at what's going on here, I want you to imagine with me that you're on uh, a trip where you're a leader supervising a group of Sunday school kids, right? Say there's 30 of them. There's a few leaders. You're there to look after them. You're all going on a day's outing to the Carrickareed Rope Bridge, now, you, if you've done this, you know there's a walk right down to the Carcareed Rope Bridge, and there are a few, a few pretty dangerous spots along the path. There are signs that tell you to stay on the path. There are warning signs that say, beware, dangerous cliff edges. Don't go beyond this point. Stay on the path. Now, imagine the kids totally ignore all the signs. They start running past them over to the edge of the cliff. What are you going to do as a leader? You're not going to say, oh, I am so thankful, kids, that you can run like that. I am so thankful and delighted and filled with joy as I watch your energy. No. What are you going to do? You're going to say, stop. Get back from that cliff edge. You could fall off. Get back on the path. Heed the warnings. Now that is essentially what Paul is doing 
in the section we're looking at this morning. He is urgently calling to the Galatians, saying, beware of false versions of the gospel. They are dangerous. Stay away from them. Stay on the true gospel path. Or to put it more positively, Paul's saying the gospel of God's grace is so important that we must be careful that we don't drift into false versions of it. Now, we all need to pay attention to this this morning. We said last week that our greatest danger as evangelicals is not an outright denial of the gospel. It's sloppy and subtle deviations from the gospel that is our main threat. And so we must not assume, oh, we've got the gospel. We have to keep re-examining our understanding of the gospel because there is so much that will always try to deviate us off the true gospel path. So in the verses we're looking at this morning, Paul gives us three clear reasons for why the Galatians and why we today must stay away from false versions of the gospel. Reason number one, they lead us away from the God of grace. Verse six, Paul is simply astonished at the speed of the Galatians drifting away from God. His language, probably intentionally, is quite similar to the language God uses in Exodus 32 verse 8 when the Israelites had turned away from worshiping God to worship a golden calf. There God said to Moses, Go down, Moses, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly from the way I have commanded them. I suppose there's nothing really new under the sun. There in Exodus, in the wilderness, the people were drifting away from the God of grace. Here in the first century, in the churches in Galatia, the people were drifting away from the God of grace. The people of God have always been a people prone to wandering. I'm sure if you're honest with yourself, you feel it in your own heart. Paul sees the Galatians wandering from the gospel of grace, and in exasperation, he just lays down the reality of what that turning away from God means for them. Look at verse 6 carefully. Notice he doesn't say, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the true gospel to turn to a false one. No, he actually says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. You are deserting God by deserting the true gospel. You are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. 
Paul is being so clear. A departure from the gospel of grace is a departure from the God of grace. Now, for the Galatians, this different gospel was one that added religious works of devotion to the finished work of Christ. They have distilled down the gospel into something that says, once again, I have to try really hard to be good. And if I'm good enough, God will accept me. They were veering off the gospel of grace path and onto a path called the gospel of legalism. And I just want to ask this morning, might this be something that you are doing? Most of us here, we know the gospel of grace very well. We are made right with God by receiving Christ alone, resting in his finished work through his death and resurrection. We know this is the gospel of grace. We're made right with God by just resting in Christ alone. But functionally, we can live our lives as if our relationship with God is based ultimately on how we're doing at our religious works of devotion. We base our acceptance or God's liking us on how well we're doing with our Bible reading or how we're doing with church attendance or how good our prayer life is or how good we are doing at sharing the gospel with others. And when we do well with those things, we feel good about ourselves. But when we're struggling with those things, we feel guilty and we don't even know if we can actually turn to God in prayer. We can live under a cloud of low-level guilt, feel embarrassed about our efforts, that we can hardly even pray. Our functional gospel of legalism actually draws us away from God. Now, if that's you and you struggle with this, and I know some of you do, let me encourage you to do something. Don't just end your prayers in Jesus' name. Start them in Jesus' name. I think Brian Chappell wrote a book with a title something like that. And the essence of what I'm saying when I say that is this. When you come to the Lord in prayer and you say, Father, look at my life. Look at how I struggle to read my Bible. Once again, just out of a pattern. Look at my prayer life, Lord. It's just so poor. I've just got so busy with stuff and I'm drifting away from you again. Lord, if I'm honest, my motivation is low. Look at me, Lord. I'm still struggling with my sins. You keep going and you say, but Father, today I don't come to you claiming the merits of my performance. That is not the basis on which I come to you this morning, Father. I come to you in the name of Jesus Christ claiming his merits. Look at my rubbish life, Lord. But look at your son's life. It's perfect. He is righteous. He's done it all. And he gives his righteousness to me 
And on that basis, I come to you this morning. You don't end your prayer in Jesus' name. You start it in Jesus' name. And you preach yourself into a place where you're just experiencing the delight of grace again. And you say, away with this low-level guilt of a legalistic, performance-based relationship with God. My relationship with God is built on Christ alone. And you pray. And you enjoy the Lord. And you realize you don't need to work to get Him to like you. You just rest in the finished work of Christ. That's how you blow out of the water this false gospel of legalism and religious devotion that will take you ultimately away from the God of grace. Listen, God does not want us here to be shrinking back to a gospel that is based on religious works. He wants us to know that we can come with confidence. Over and over again, God sees to it that we are told this in His Word. One of the most beautiful places is perhaps Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, confidence, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh, Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. God wants his children to come running to him with confidence, not carring away saying, oh, I've just been so poor, my father won't want to see me today because I'm so dirty. No. Come with confidence. Confidence in what? Not in your works, in Christ's work. So beware false gospels. They'll take you away from the God of grace and the grace of God. Second reason for bewaring false gospels. They are actually no gospel at all. Now, Paul quickly qualifies what he's just said in verse 6 about turning to a different gospel. He says in verse 7, now, not that there is another one. He's saying there is no other version of the good news of how we are made right with God. It is Christ alone or false gospel. That's it. How is someone made right with God? Christ alone? Every other explanation is false gospel. Then Paul proceeds to expose what the proponents of the false gospel are doing in the Galatian region when he says, but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now that word distort is an interesting word. It can actually be translated reverse because nearly every instant of it in the New Testament has someone taking something like light and exchanging it for darkness or something high being brought low, turning from light to darkness, turning from a high place to a low place. 
it nearly always speaks of turning something the other way around, flipping something upside down, making something back to front. Now, why do I stress that? I think it's really insightful. The gospel, the apostolic gospel, the gospel that was received by Jesus Christ, declares that we are saved from our sins and from the wrath of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are saved from our sins by receiving Christ by faith and resting in His finished work alone. Flowing out of that faith alone that saves comes the fruit of a transformed life. Paul's going to go on to explain this in Galatians chapter 5. You know the famous passage, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. That's Galatians 5. Now, the Holy Spirit transforms our lives when we are Christians so that we start to reflect the character of Christ in our lives. Our character is transformed. In chapter 5, verse 13, Paul says, through love we start to serve other people. In chapter 6, verse 9, he speaks of Christians doing good works that flow from their faith. So here's the apostolic gospel. You're saved by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ alone. And when you're saved, your life is transformed. You start to reflect the character of Christ in your life. You start to want to do good works of devotion for the Lord. Now, what happens if you flip that round? Reverse that. Let's start with where I finished. Imagine someone was to say, you need to do good works of devotion unto the Lord to get him to accept you. You need to show that you're a good person, you need to show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You need to be really committed to church. You need to be really committed to Bible reading. You need to be really committed to praying. You need to be really committed to confessing your sins. And if you're devoted enough, if you're good enough, then you'll be made right with God. God will approve you. And then you can just try and maintain that effort so that you don't lose his approval. That's what it is to reverse the gospel. What will reversing the gospel do to you? It will enslave you to fear. Because you could never know, have I done enough? Let me be really clear this morning. Any theology or system that posits works as the basis of our relationship with God is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every other religious system that looks to anything else but Jesus Christ alone for salvation to be right with God is a false gospel. It is no gospel at all. Any other religious system that looks to anything else but Jesus Christ alone for salvation is no gospel at all. This includes Roman Catholicism, Jehovah's Witnesses, 
Mormons, other Christian corruptions, Islam, Sikhism, Hinduism, Baha'i, Buddhism, Confucianism, Judaism, Shintoism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism. False gospels. Deceptions. Lies. Does this trouble you? Me speaking like this? Do you feel it? We are so immersed in the mushy world of relativism today. They have their truth, we have ours. Rubbish. There are not two truths, three truths, four truths, five truths, five, six, seven, eight, ten versions of the gospel. There's one. Naive pluralism says all religions lead to God. That is not true. There is one true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he gets to define how people come to him. And he has said it is through his son, Christ alone. Hebrews 5, 9 says that Jesus Christ is the source of eternal salvation for the world. And just so you know that I'm not the one saying this, this is God in his word, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, all of this means we must be more committed than ever to evangelism and world mission. We must pray. We must give. We must go. We must support. We must be active in bringing the hope of the gospel to bear on all these deceptions that enslave people to reverse versions of the gospel. Every one of them do enough good to be okay. The Christian evangelical truth alone says we cannot do enough good to be right with God. But God in his love and grace has given us his son. He has done enough. And so we have got to be committed again at Great Vic to evangelizing our city, to evangelizing this whole island. We have to be committed, as committed as ever, in going to the nations with the good news of the gospel. And one amazing truth is that God is bringing many of the people from the nations to us. And so we must be thinking through how we can preach this gospel of Christ alone to bring hope to the nations who are among us. One opportunity has been mentioned this morning, St. Patrick's Day Outreach. It's a wonderful way for us to get involved, either through praying for that or through supporting it in some way and just saying, yeah, I want to, if that's an expression of me trying to respond to this sermon, yeah, I'm in. And you can think about how you can respond in different ways. But here's the clear warning that Paul gives or second reason for giving this warning, beware false gospels. They are no gospel at all. 
They're not good news. They're bad news because they take you back to works. Now, the third reason then that Paul gives is this. Beware false gospels. Those who propagate and entertain them are under God's curse. Now, because of everything we've said above and identified above, we see Paul being very strong in verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Then to show that this is no impassioned, emotional, over-the-top outburst, he repeats himself. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul is clear. The messenger and his or her status, power or gifting, does not authenticate the message. It is the message that authenticates the messenger. Notice in verse 9, Paul speaks of the gospel that the Galatians had originally received. And that's important. The apostles received, that is, we saw last week, the 12 and the apostle Paul, they received the gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. The apostles received from the Lord Jesus the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can be made right with God through the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. Paul's clear here. This message is never to be changed. And he says, even if I come back to you and I say, oh, well, well, I got that all wrong, I'm changing everything, let me be cursed. Or if an angel comes to you and says, actually, there's something new, let them be cursed. For anyone who brings an alternative gospel that is different to the apostolic gospel, the gospel received from Jesus, that person who entertains it is under God's curse. Now, this is really significant because we recognize that part of our job in the church is to preserve the gospel in every generation. It's also very significant when you think of the foundations of Islam. In 610 AD, near Mecca in Saudi Arabia, a man named Muhammad walked into a cave seeking alone time with God. Islam teaches that there, the angel Gabriel appeared to Muhammad, pinned him against the wall, and said, read! And he said, I don't know how to read. And the angel pressed him even tighter and said, read! And he said, but I can't. And then the angel pressed him even harder and said, read! And he said, what shall I read? And then started a series of revelations from this angel that were given over the next 23 years, written down now and preserved in the Quran. Now, I don't know what scripture Muhammad had access to, if only he and his people 
had read Paul's letter to the Galatians. If even an angel comes and says something contrary to the apostolic gospel, it is anathema. Or 1820, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, claims that an angel came and gave him the golden plates when translated, formed the Book of Mormon. Paul's clear. If an angel, or if he himself, if anyone comes with something different to the true apostolic gospel, received from Jesus himself, that whole system is anathema. Why? Because it takes people away from the God of grace and the grace of God. It turns the gospel around and makes it a works-based salvation. And therefore, as I said in passing there a moment ago, but want to emphasize now, part of our job in the church in every age is not just to proclaim the gospel, but to preserve it. To preserve the gospel from all modern attacks and deviations from it. I remember speaking to Pete Williams once, who's the warden of Tyndale House, a center for theological study in Cambridge. And I said, you know, what are some of your priorities at Tyndale House? And he listed a few things, but amidst the things that Pete listed, he also said, guarding from theological drift. That just really struck me. That in every age, there's actively forces trying to deviate us away from the true gospel path. And so we've got to be getting back again to the gospel, re-examining the gospel, doing everything we can to make sure that we are preserving that which was passed down from the Lord to the apostles and then preserved in every generation right up until today. We have received a baton and we want to make sure that we guard that baton carefully as we run our course. It is always my heart that whatever the Lord has for me Whenever I come, if he, if, I, if he comes to take me home and I'm still a pastor here, or if he has led me somewhere else, that in the end, I will look back and say, truly, one thing they could say about me is he gave us the gospel. That's my heart. The gospel is like a great anvil in a blacksmith's workshop. Many things are changed by it and on it, but it doesn't change. You can strike it, attack it, or immerse it, but the gospel anvil remains unchanged. In Jude 3, we read, Beloved, though I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So I hope you're seeing why we're in Galatians. I hope you're recognizing afresh how important it is that we get the gospel right in every generation. Let's make sure that here at Great Vic we are preservers of the apostolic gospel. Now, in light of all this, Paul draws things to a conclusion in verse 10, and this is where I want to conclude. After everything that Paul has said, It's no surprise that Paul says what he says now in verse 10. It seems like his opponents in Galatia were saying, you know, this Paul, he's just trying to please people. He's just trying to gain a following. 
He'll fit in Jewish customs where it suits him, but when it doesn't, he won't. He'll circumcise Timothy, won't circumcise Titus. He'll just do whatever works. Seems like that is one of the arguments that was being used against Paul to undermine him in, undermine him in Galatia. But look at what Paul says in verse 10. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I just trying to please man? Now, what he's saying there essentially is, look, this gospel is outrageous to the world. If I was trying to please and get approval from people, I would not be a servant of Jesus Christ. You've heard what I've said this morning from God's word. The Christian message that there is no other gospel outside of Jesus Christ, that is not a popular message in our world today. In fact, it can make a lot of people very upset in our day as it did in Paul's day. But man, there is a real closing challenge for us here in verse 10. Paul says, essentially, true gospel people are those who seek first God's approval and not the approval of man. Let me say that again. Paul is saying true gospel people are those who seek first God's approval and they don't seek first the approval of man. Yet when I hear that, when I reflect on that, I'm sure when you reflect on that, is this not one of the biggest struggles we all face? We, we just fear what people think of us. We are like cavernous caves of longing for approval from people. It's just like, I just long for you to think well of me. We seek approval from people as a way of feeling good about ourselves. And I think Paul brings us here in verse 10 to say, oh, beware that false version of the gospel. It is the most enslaving of them all. Our false gospels can take many varieties, but here verse 10 exposes a pretty major one. Are you really living your life for the approval of God, or are you more concerned and worried about the approval of the people around you, in your family, in your workplace, wherever your sphere of living is? In John 5:44, Jesus said, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now, let's, let's get this right. I've said this before, but I want to say this again. How do you battle this sin of wanting, caring more about the approval of man than the approval of God? Well, you don't start battling that, getting into that fight by trying to stop seeking glory. Don't start by saying, right, I'm just going to stop seeking approval. That will never work. You are hardwired by God to seek approval. You try to stop seeking approval, it'll be like saying, right, I'm just going to stop breathing and, and live. No. Our big problem is, is that we, we seek approval, but we seek it in the wrong place. So Jesus said, look, how can you really be a person of faith when you're seeking glory, you're seeking approval, you're seeking affirmation from people all the time, 
and you're not seeking it from God. How do you fix that problem? You get back to seeking your approval from God and not from people. Do you get what I'm saying there? So you don't say, I'm going to stop seeking approval. No, you just say, I'm going to change the source. I'm going to say, Lord, you know this morning I need approval big time when I'm looking to you. Does this not bring us right back to the gospel again? We are made to long for the approval of God. His approval is the only approval that will ever truly satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. How do we get approval with God? In Christ alone. This is immensely liberating. God is pleased with us. He approves us, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of what Christ has done. And so we can rest and say all that insecurity, all that longing for approval, all that chasing it in all the wrong places, where am I set free from all of that? In the gospel, Christ. I am approved by God because of Jesus. Yes. <laughs> and you just rest there. And then you pray that that, uh, that that approval of God would become much bigger in your world than the big people in your life. Seek the approval of God because only the approval of God can satisfy every deep longing in your soul. So, Paul concludes there in verse 10, and let us conclude. Let's go back to our illustration at the beginning, on the gospel path, kids running off like crazy around the cliffs. This text is like a big massive sign, beware false gospels. They'll take you away from God. They're no gospel at all. Those who entertain them are under God's judgment. Stay on the gospel path, for there, there is freedom. God wants you to live in the goodness of his approval. He wants you to live in the goodness of his grace. He wants to help you battle your tendency to turn aside to look to other things for what only God can give you. So stay on the gospel path, great Vic for there is life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the clarity of your word. Thank you, Father, for giving us your son. In him, there is life. And Father, thank you for this letter to the Galatians, for you are God seeing the Galatians going off track and seeing how we today can deviate off the gospel path into legalism, into guilt, into works-based righteousness. Oh Lord, you, you've given us this as a gift to say, just come back onto the gospel path. That's where there's life for you. 
And I just pray this morning, if there's anyone here and they're, they're not Christians and they're, they're trying to chase good works to get right with God, I pray this morning that they would realize there is another way, there is a gospel path, good news, that Christ has done it all. We just need to receive and rest in Him. Lord, may this be liberating for us all this morning, now as we respond and as we come together to break bread and to drink the cup, to remember Christ's death where we are made whole. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, we are going to uh, come to the Lord's table now, but as we prepare for that, we're going to sing together the first two verses of When I Survey. If you're planning to share in the Lord's Supper and you haven't picked up your uh, bread and, and cup there at the back there, you can just nip out and get one if you're participating in communion. Let's sing together though, let's stand as we sing, and then I'll explain what we're doing and we'll break the bread and drink the cup together.